Philippians chapter 4. The title of this message is The Joy of Gospel Generosity and Contentment. The Joy of Gospel Generosity and Contentment. Philippians 4, we'll start reading together in verse 10. We'll go through the end of the chapter. I'm reading and preaching today from the New American Standard. Paul writes in Philippians 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance, and I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in the book of Philippians, you have been working in us a deeper joy. That spirit, you once again have held Christ forward as the greatest treasure. You've beckoned us to be more enamored with who he is, more in awe of what the gospel means for our lives. You've taught us that there's nothing we have to do. Christ has already done it all, that we are perfectly loved. And that even when life is really hard, even in the midst of pain, we can know joy and peace because of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Lord, we thank you for these lessons. We ask that today, Lord, you would deal with us on the issues of generosity and contentment. We would confess at the outset that we're probably not generous enough and probably not as content as we ought to be. And so we would invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and work in our hearts. We pray for soft hearts and open minds now. And we ask together, Lord, that you'd please anoint me to teach and preach your word in a way that is consonant with your character and that glorifies you and furthers your purposes for your glory. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We all have this sense in us of self-preservation. We want to preserve self. We want to look out for ourselves. We want to make sure that we're okay. So much so, it's so prevalent among us, it seems almost instinctual. It seems inherent. We certainly see it in animals. They've got this instinct to preserve themselves, but we see it in ourselves, don't we? We seem to have this instinct 
of self-preservation. And because it seems inherent and instinctual, it almost seems okay to us. It almost seems right. And so you hear culture reverberating that in all sorts of ways. You got to look out for number one. You know, you got to take care of yourself first. You got to get me time. You got to have you time. You know, we, we hear this kind of stuff echoed throughout culture. But what if? What if this self-preservationist attitude so prevalent among all of us was actually the source of all of our discontent? What if what we thought was going to make us happy looking out for number one was actually going to leave us empty and cause us to be longing? The Apostle Paul's writing here from a place of pain. He's in prison. He's under house arrest in Rome, and he's been through a lot of stuff. And the Romans had an interesting thing that they would do when they would imprison you. They would charge you for it. You had to pay your way through prison. So when you got thrown in jail, you had to pay the bill. I think that's awesome. I think we ought to do that in America. I think less people will go to jail if they had to pay the price. You know what I mean? So Paul's in this, this difficult circumstance. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. He's already been through all sorts of stuff, and he's got to pay the bills. He's under house arrest, so there's rent to pay and food and so on and so forth. And the church in Philippi that he had started through the preaching of the gospel heard what was going on with him. It was difficult to hear in those days what was going on with someone hundreds of miles away, right? There wasn't Twitter, there wasn't Facebook, you know, he didn't go onto someone's Facebook page and like, oh my gosh, he's under house arrest. It was just hard to hear that, like it had to come through, you know, a long circle of messengers and so on and so forth. And they heard that and they responded with compassionate generosity. It wasn't easy for a church in those days to be compassionately generous. You couldn't wire money. You know what I mean? They had to send somebody with the actual financial gift. So they sent Epaphroditus, the guy mentioned here in verse 18. And he went there and gave the gift to Paul. So Paul is in this place of tremendous need. And he, he hadn't been in Philippi for years. He'd started the church, but he hadn't been there for years. But, but when they heard about this man who had meant so much in their life, they responded with compassionate generosity. And it makes me think about the fact that every church is known for and will be remembered for something. Every church is known for and will be remembered for something. We, we glean that in the New Testament. We see from reading the book of Romans that the church in Rome was remembered for and known for its faith. We read in the book of Revelation that the church in Ephesus was known for its hard work. If we were to read First uh, and Second Corinthians, we would see that the church there was known for and is now remembered for its division, right? Its divisive uh, attitude and its moral laxity. But it was just kind of not that tough on morals. The church in Laodicea was famously remembered for being the lukewarm church that Jesus promised to spew out of his mouth. And here we see that the church of Philippi is going to be remembered for compassionate generosity. And as a member of this church along with you guys, I would hope that we would be known and remembered for being a compassionate, generous people and people together. A little praise report on how we're doing with that. At the beginning of last year's fourth fiscal quarter, so in the fall, 
we encourage each other to grow in a few areas. We encourage each other to grow in the area of prayer as a church, in the area of loving each other and others, and in the area of generosity, in the area of giving. And you guys have responded wonderfully to that. We've seen our church grow in all of those areas in the last part of 2010 and going into 2011. And particularly in the area of finances, we, we expected that we were going to respond well because it was a move of the Lord. We expected that you guys and we together would respond well. And in the last quarter of last year, you guys increased your giving 34% at the church, which is just, yeah, praise the Lord for that. That's, that's a good thing. And before we knew what the increase was, we, we committed together that, look, Whatever we bring in in this time where we're being stirred to be more generous, whatever we bring in that is above and beyond our planned operational expenses, we're going to give it all away. We're going to model generosity. We're going to give it away. We're going to get it outside the four walls of the church. We're going to put it to work in the nations and in our communities, but we're going to get it out and give it away to model generosity. That means that this month we're praying as a church how to give away $200,000 as a church. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. And what's funny is, is since we, we committed together to do that, s- some plans for the future become clear that now we're saying, gosh, we really actually need that money really bad. This is not a good time to give it away, but that's actually the best time to give it away. Because unless it hurts, I don't think it's generosity. Unless it hurts, I don't know if it's really biblical generosity. So we're doing that together as a church. When the Philippians became aware of Paul's need, they responded with compassionate generosity and they're commended in the text for doing so. And in Paul commending them and talking about their gift, he teaches us a few things about generosity here in the text. First thing that he teaches us is that generosity is good, generally speaking. Generosity is good. We see that in verse 14. He says, you have done well to share with me. Now, why is generosity good? Let's think a little deeper. It's not just because, well, there's people in need and we, you know, we should give. It's actually deeper than that. You see, it's, a, it's an image of God issue. You see, God exists as a giver. God is a giver. God is generous in his very nature. We were created in the image of God. We were created to be generous givers, but sin has marred the image of God in us. And so in the marring of that image, we find ourselves greedy and self-preservationist rather than giving and open. And it's good to give because it is the process of restoring the image of God in us. It is the Spirit's work of restoring in us and therefore in humanity the image of God. We look most like God when we are most generous. For God so loved the world, he gave. You see, God is a giver. And what did he give? He didn't just like give, oh, here's a little something. He gave his son. For God so loved the world that he gave. We're never more like God than when we're generous. And and generosity is good because it is a restoration of the image of God in a remnant of humanity known as the church. The second thing that we learn is that generosity brings joy. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. 
Now, it's obvious on the receiving end that it brings joy, and Paul's on the receiving end here. But we, what we know biblically is that generous giving brings joy on both ends. Jesus is quoted in Acts 20, 35 as having said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We always say that when we didn't get what we wanted for Christmas. We're like, oh, well, it's more blessed to give. You know, it's like our fallback, help ourselves feel better position. But the Bible actually means it. It it is a more blessed position to be giving than to be receiving. Both of them ought to bring great joy. Obviously, when you get something, gosh, we're just not that far past Christmas. I'm still rejoicing over some things I got. You know that. but, But do we know that it brings great joy into the Christian life to give. And if perhaps there's a, a lack of joy in your Christian experience, is it possible, biblically speaking, that it's because you've, you've sort of quenched the joy by being a greedy person? That you're not experiencing joy in the Lord because you're functioning dominantly according to a self-preservationist ideal. See, when we give ourselves in all sorts of ways away, we experience deep joy. The next thing that we learn is that generosity is rare, unfortunately. Verse 15, he says, no church shared with me in these things, but you alone. Generosity is rare. We don't only see that here in the text, but we see that in our human experience, don't we? It's just true generosity is rare. And so when we see someone doing it, as a society, we loud that. We, we, we applaud that when we see someone who is truly self-sacrificially generous. All of us can agree that is good. And the reason that we're so enamored with that when we see it is because it's truly rare. I got a thought on that, but I'm going to save it. The, the next thing that we see is that generosity is rewarded. Verse 17, he says he was concerned about the profit or it could be translated the fruit, which increases to your account. Generosity is rewarded. The Christian must know that he or she is going to stand before God and be judged, not according to our sins, because Christ dealt with that at the cross. Can I get an Amen. Not according to our sins, thank you, Jesus, but for reward, according to our faithfulness with the, God things, with the things God has entrusted us to live life on mission with. And there's this sense in which generosity will be rewarded. It's called fruit here to their account. We often think of Christian fruit as just having to do with our character because of Galatians 5, 22 and 23, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But there's other kinds of fruit that abound to our account. Um, when we participate in someone turning to Christ and repenting of their sins, that's called fruit to our account. And here, generosity is fruit or profit to our account. So literally now, when we stand before Christ and given an account for how we've been faithful with the things he entrusted us with, there will be reward for generosity. There will be reward in heaven. Listen, if you trust in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, you're going to heaven, and nobody's going to be bummed when they get to heaven. Nobody's going to be like, what? This is it? What a jip. I can't, I expected so much more. Nobody's going to be doing that. 
But some, it seems, will experience more than others because they're being rewarded according to their faithfulness. And the Bible seems to have no problem using reward as an impetus for proper life lived on mission, as an impetus for generosity and doing the right thing. As parents, we use those all the time, right? Like, I live on that. Like that reward system, I'm like, eat your carrot, then you get a cookie. You don't eat your carrot, you don't get a cookie. Like, live on that every day. God's got no problem doing that. God's got no problem saying, look, you do the right thing in this lifetime and you will be rewarded in the next. And the New Testament will press upon us that we ought to have this awareness of that day when we'll stand before Christ and give an account. And there will be a reward for generosity. The next thing we learn is that generosity is ultimately an expression of how we feel about God. Whether or not we are generous says something about how we feel about God. He says about their gift in verse 18, the second part, he says it was a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. They had given it to Paul, but in the ultimate account, it is something that is given to God. You see, there's a sense in which all of humanity is accountable to God for everything. Every sin is ultimately against God. Even when we sin against each other and we hurt each other and we treat each other wrong, that's ultimately a sin against God. And every good thing that we do to each other and with each other is ultimately for and unto the Lord. Jesus said this expressly in Matthew 25 when he said, whatever you do to the least of these, you have done for me. So humanity is ultimately accountable to God. We need to start to think Think about it in those terms then. Because whether or not we are generous reveals or betrays, exposes something about how we perceive God, how we feel about God. Let me just make it real plain. I would surmise from Scripture that those who are most enamored with Christ, most treasure Christ, and most in awe of the gospel are living the most generous lives those who maybe don't value Christ as the ultimate treasure and aren't fully in awe of gospel truth might be holding back a little bit. At some level, the way that we are living with regards to generosity says something about what we feel and think about God. The next thing that we get from the text is that generosity is an expression of faith in God as our provider. He tells them in verse 19, after they've given this generous gift, he says, God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So then, whether or not we are generous says something about whether or not we trust God. I mean, truly trust God. Now, we love for God to be a supplement, right? We like to have our our bank account and our insurance policy and our equity and our portfolio and Jesus, And we say, now that's good right there. I got all those things lined up. And Jesus, what a bonus, what a supplement. But whether or not we're generous, the way that we do or do not hold on to things says whether or not we really trust in God to be our provision. Look how it says God provides for us. According to his riches in glory. God will provide all your needs according to his riches in glory. I don't even know what that means, but it just sounds like he's got our backs. It just sounds like no matter what comes down the pipe, no matter what's going on, God can cover it. 
that God is more than sufficient, that there's more than enough in his riches. Like what drama, what lack do you have that he in his riches can't deal with? And we're not just talking physical or material things. We're talking pain, hurt, a sense of loss, identity issues. What, what lack is there that God in his goodness can't supply there? Notice the phrase, in Christ Jesus. He will supply all your needs in glory in Christ Jesus. We need to begin to see Jesus as our supply. We need to begin to locate all of our identity and our security and our hope in Jesus. If we hope in this world only, that's loss. In Christ Jesus is our supply. You see, we, we think as a culture, we think as people that in order to be secure, we need to accumulate certain things here on earth and we need to accumulate certain position here on earth. And that just, that just simply isn't true. The Bible doesn't bear that out, but nor does popular culture bear that out. I mean, right? Some of the most miserable people are some of the most powerful, wealthy people. I, I remind you of what we read from Jim Carrey last week in our sermon. He said, I wish that everybody could be rich and famous so that they could see it isn't the answer to anything. And yet it's really hard for us to truly lay hold of that. We, we really start to think that to have security, I have to accumulate certain things and certain position, and then I'm secure. But the Bible doesn't bear that out. Popular culture and what we can observe doesn't bear that out. Somehow, we got to get that through our heads. Somehow, we got to get that Bible truth into us. And for some of us, that might mean at times doing something radical, doing something crazy. James Montgomery Boyce was a respected pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a legendary guy of the faith, great commentator and author and trusted pastor. He suggested this in a book I've been reading of his. He said, from my own observation of the various patterns of Christian giving today, I believe one of the best things that could happen to many believers would be for them to be led to give away all at one time a substantial part of their savings. Why? Because there's something about giving away a sizable percentage of one's money that is spiritually invigorating. The Christian is thrown back on the Lord and learns that he is more than able to care for the one who trusts him. I've seen this happen in many instances. I've never known a true Christian to be sorry for even the most sacrificial giving afterward. I've never known a true Christian to be sorry for even the most sacrificial giving afterward. That's a, that's a tough one. Two things that the Lord has led my wife and I to do since we got married that have been profoundly enriching to our Christian experience. The first was to get rid of our TV. When we first got married, we just felt like Jesus was saying, dude, you can't even handle TV, bro. Like, maybe some of you can. Maybe you watch TV all the time and you love Jesus more. You're awesome. For me, I couldn't do that. It was just good. It made me think of other things. And so we got rid of our TV, and man, it was one of the best things we ever did for our spiritual life. One of the best things ever. That was 13 years ago. Haven't looked back. The other thing that we've done a couple times now is to drain our bank account. 
take it all the way down and give it all away. That was something God called us to do. And I'm not saying that anybody else in the world needs to do that. The gospel doesn't say you need to do that. You're loved and accepted perfectly by God because of what Christ has done. It's not about what you do. It's, what about, it's, it's about what Christ has done. So I'm not saying you need to do that. I'm not even necessarily suggesting that. But let me pose this question to us in all humility. Why won't you do that? Because I'm assuming that most of you are going to leave and not, not do that. And I just want us to just sort of take stock in our hearts why that is. Again, I'm not saying you have to do it, but, but why is it that you probably wouldn't do it? Is it because that, that's your nest egg? That's the security? Is it because it's too much money? Dude, you got to see my savings, bro. Nobody gives away that much money. Is that... I agree. I, I don't think I would either, but, but what are you holding on to? And, and maybe for you, it's not money. Maybe it's forgiveness that you're holding on to. Maybe you refuse to forgive somebody. Maybe it's your time. Maybe you refuse to love in a radical, giving way. But whatever it is, why, 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 why do we hold on to these things? What is it in you that's going to cause you to walk out of this place and say, I I wouldn't give away my savings? And then maybe whatever those reasons are, you should start to pray about those. Don't tell me, don't tell it. Just take them to Jesus. Lord, I have this, this bank account and I won't give it away because. And just let the Lord start to deal with those issues. And then I think we should ask ourselves, in what ways are we currently being generous? In what ways are we currently being generous? In in what ways are we participating in the kingdom, sowing into the kingdom? Because it's one thing to be in the kingdom. And and if you count on Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're in the kingdom. It's one thing to be in the kingdom. It's another thing to participate in the kingdom. So we should ask ourselves, in what ways am I participating in the kingdom going forward? In what ways am I currently being generous? If we were all to die today, January 23rd, 2011, and stand before Christ tonight, what would be there on the register for generosity that could be rewarded right now? What's going on in our lives right now that Christ would say, well done, good and faithful servant? Be rewarded for that. How are you being generous now? Now, of course, one of the things that keeps us from participating in the kingdom and and radical generosity is the fear that it would affect our comfort, right? That's why I don't do certain things is I I don't want to give up some of my comfort. That's why I don't witness about Christ to that guy in the line in Starbucks, because I just want to get my flipping latte and get out of here. I just want my, my comfort drink, and it would just be really uncomfortable in the line to be like, you need to repent of your sins and give them the whole gospel story. And I just don't want to be uncomfortable like that, so that's why I don't do that. I don't go to the places of greatest need, like India and stuff, because I just wouldn't be comfortable there. 
That's why we don't give more generously to the work of the gospel and those who are doing it and those in greatest need because that, that, would, that would take away from some of our comfort because here's what we're dealing with. Already in the place we're at, we scarcely feel content now. We scarcely feel content now and we worry and we think that any further sacrifice would only make us less content, less secure. You see, but that wasn't the experience of the Apostle Paul. And that's not the witness of Scripture. Paul's testimony is that he has given everything away in the work of the Lord. And he is full of joy. Paul's testimony is that he has suffered much in the work of the kingdom. And yet he's got this peace and this contentment and this joy. I mean, let me read to you a summation of Paul's um, ministry. I'll just read it. Just listen from 2 Corinthians 11. Here's his ministry. He says, I've been in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That means rocks, not smoking. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Paul had suffered what we would assume to be great loss in the cause of the gospel. But here he's saying, I have great contentment. I have great joy. What if our self-preservationist attitude that seems inherent and instinctive is actually the source of our discontent? What if Jesus was right? What if he really meant it? When he said, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Or as he said another way in another gospel, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. You see, that's the testimony of Paul. And that's exactly what he experienced. And of countless others throughout history. Because what the gospel does is it turns everything upside down. You see, Christ gave himself and suffered much, and in that he gained and won everything. But the world says you don't lose and suffer and win. But the gospel turns everything upside down. And says what seems to be lost, what seems to be suffering is actually of greatest gain. And and this gospel principle is what the whole Christian life operates it on, operates on. And to try to always preserve self and comfort in a way that hinders generosity will only yield further discontent. The design of God sees to it. Don't misunderstand me. 
It's not, we have to do these certain things to be accepted by God. The gospel is not, you must do. The gospel is, Christ has already done. But you see, what Christ has done frees us not to need things in the same way anymore. Because of what Christ has done for us, we don't need the approval of people like we used to need it. Because of what Christ has done for us, we don't need that certain power and influence like we used to need it. Because of what Christ has done for us, we don't need the accumulation of those things like we used to need them. And not needing them so much now, because we're able to locate our identity and our joy and our peace and our contentment in Jesus, we can actually enjoy those things more. Do you know that when you stop expecting your spouse to provide you with all joy and peace and contentment, when you stop doing that and place that need on Christ where it belongs, you enjoy him or her more? Do you know you enjoy people more when you stop needing their approval and just receive the approval of God through the cross of Christ? And needing these things less, we enjoy them more. Because you see, we have a new self. And and, and the new self that is patterned after Christ actually has a truer longing than the old self. You see, the old self was watch out for self first. I got to get mine. Right, right. The old self was self-preservation and had this desire to see that happen. The new self actually has a truer longing, the longer to give oneself away. The longing to give oneself away. That's who we are in Christ. There is now in us, because we're new creations, a truer longing. I know that the old longing still rears its head and does battle. But the truer desire in us is to give ourselves away because we've been remade in the image of God who gave himself, who became poor on our behalf that we might become rich in him. You see, we're being most true to who we are in Christ and most true to the gospel when we're being most generous with our love, with our forgiveness, with our kindness, with our resources. And subsequently, we are most content when we feel most free to give. The world says you're going to be content when you get. The gospel says you're most content when you're most free to give. That is gospel generosity and contentment. And that yields joy in the life of the believer. Look again at Paul's testimony, starting in verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's that key verse in verse 12 in the New Living. It says, I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether his stomach is full or empty, in plenty or in want. And both circumstances are challenges, plenty or want. See, one creates desire that acts out in a certain way and the other creates apathy that manifests itself in another way. But both situations, humanity proves, create discontent. Neither party is satisfied. You know what illustrates this discontentment in people is the garden. 
if Eve had been fully content with her place in the garden, Satan would have had nothing on her. Eve and we only fell and only fall to temptation in our discontentment. See, there's a secret to living well, to living right, to having contentment and joy. It's verse 13. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. What a wonderful promise. What a promise that we can stand on. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. That everything is obviously limited by context. It means everything that Christ has you doing, every situation that he has you in, not anything you want to do. I want to do this. Christ, give me strength. I want to rule the world and make $10 billion. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what it means, you idiot. It means that whatever situation... God has you and no matter how difficult, we can persevere. We can do it through Christ who himself is our strength. The Christian must begin to see Jesus as his or her supply. Christ who gives me strength. For what you're facing today, let me ask you, are you leaning on Christ or are you leaning on self, on something else? on your own resources. Christ is our strength and our supply. And so Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Think about how freeing that is. That Paul's contentment was totally autonomous from his circumstances, totally independent from his circumstances. We are usually driven by our circumstances, driven by them. What's going on in our life seems to dictate whether or not we have peace, joy, and contentment. And Paul's just saying that Jesus is the one who gives us peace, joy, and contentment so that those things now exist for the Christian independent of circumstances. And Paul says he had to learn that. I've learned to be content in any circumstance. There's a a learning process that the Holy Spirit takes us through. I might just ask you what's going on in your life that might be a learning process that the Spirit is walking you through to bring you to a place where you're more content with Jesus. You have more peace in Him, more, more joy in Him. The Bible seems to say that one of the primary ways that we learn that and that Paul learned that is through suffering. It says in Hebrews 5.8 that even Christ learned obedience through the things He suffered. If Jesus learned obedience through suffering, what would ever make us think that we might escape suffering? The psalmist said, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And I'll just say, coming off the worst year of my life, that the more difficulties I experience, the more I am inclined to trust Jesus, cling to Jesus, and enjoy Jesus. I currently enjoy. Man, if you don't know what that word means, I I don't know how to exegete it for you. I currently enjoy Jesus more than I ever have in my life. And I I just find that that the the more I've hurt, the, the more I've been insecure, the more pain I've experienced, the more beautiful and enjoying Jesus has become. I enjoy him more than ever before. And I think that's the hope 
in the book of Philippians that because of who Christ is and what Christ has done, we can have joy in the midst of pain and peace in the face of difficulties and be content in every circumstance. And if, brothers and sisters, we learn to be content in every circumstance, then we will always have joy. And that's a gift of God. Jesus says, joy I give to you. That's a gift of God. And the goal of life, I think, is to enjoy Jesus. I think that's what it's all about, is to enjoy him and to bring him glory. Verse 20, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for challenging us with these things today. And Lord, we say together that these challenges are are difficult. Lord, the things that I preach today, I, I in no way claim to be there. But we want to be those people. We want to better reflect you and represent you in culture through generosity. We want to more fully enjoy you in every season. We want this peace and this contentment that seems so elusive in this world. We want to find it in you, Christ. So Holy Spirit, come and help us to do that. Come and help us to do that, Lord. If you've been moved today, and I suggested to you that you pray about the reasons why you wouldn't give your savings away, pray today. Start to pray about those things today. Grab each other. Prayer team will be up here somewhere in the midst of the 405. And, and, and pray. Chances are, if you don't pray about it now, you're not going to pray about giving it all away later after lunch. Put a move on what the Lord is speaking to you today. You guys sitting on the carpets of... If you're not going to kind of worship up here, you can move to the back of the room at this time because some people are going to want to come and get on their faces and take communion and there'll be prayer team and pastors and elders up here. So feel free to get up and move around. But let's do everything we can to press into and enjoy Jesus and put a move on in the spirit, what he said to us. Let's do that.